0: Pushkin.
1: Hey, Last Archive listeners. It's Ben Nadefhaffri. I'm a producer on the show. We have a special episode for you today that I'm really excited about. It's the first episode of Pushkin's newest podcast, Into the Zone. Into the Zone is hosted by the fantastic author Hari Kunzru. As a novelist, he's really interested in how people tend to define ideas by opposites, when really the borders between things, East and West, Black and White... Are never as clear as they seem. The show also features a lot of historical research, which I know you'll appreciate, though the episode you're about to hear goes a bit farther back than we usually do. It goes to 3000 BC to ask who really built the mysterious Stonehenge and shows how new genetic research is upending our assumptions about who's a native and who's a newcomer. Give it a listen and then subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss a single episode of Into the Zone. Okay, here's how he through.
0: wheezing their way in between the stones. So there's, there's people who are standing very quietly. There's somebody who's doing kind of calisthenic movements. Little hint of marijuana on there.
2: Bring forth new opportunities and beginnings. One
0: equinox, I came to see the sunrise at Stonehenge. Every time someone says Stonehenge in a documentary, or at least the first time, there has to be a cosmic chord. Don't complain to me about it. I don't make the rules. I think I can hear somebody with a temple gong or a, a singing bowl or something like that. On the equinox, day and night are of almost equal lengths. So I've come to see the sunrise at Stonehenge. Let's go find where the uh, tones are coming from. These days, you can't get very near the stones, out on the middle of Salisbury Plain. Visitors are kept at a distance to avoid damage. But British pagans say this site is crucial for their faith. In the past, they've even fought police to get access to the stones. So finally, the body that manages the site, English Heritage, agreed that on four days a year, people could be allowed to worship here. This is one of those mornings. Thee we invoke, O light of life. Thee we invoke, O light of life. Be thou a bright flame before us. Be thou a bright flame before us. There's a crowd here pretty much what you'd expect if you've ever hung around the British free festival scene. There are robes and staffs and garlands of flowers. Kindle low within our hearts. Kindle, though, within our hearts. A flame of love to our knees. The head druid is a benevolent-looking fellow with a white beard and a battered Panama hat. To our
1: friends, to
0: our hosts, to our kingdom all. If you grew up in England like I did, then Stonehenge is a powerful national symbol. But it's not a castle, or a cathedral, or a stately home. It doesn't quite fit into official British history, the story dominated by the rich and powerful.
2: And as much willie as he possibly can, so the Stones really do sing with us. Ladies and gentlemen. Ah.
0: Something about Stonehenge leads people to think about great mysteries, about cosmic energy and aliens and lost civilizations. You could say it's come to symbolize mystery itself, the possibility that our ancestors held secrets, and if only we could unlock them, we'd find out the truth about ourselves. I came to Stonehenge with a question in my mind, a whispering voice. Do the stones belong to me? My mother's English, but my father came to England from India. Stonehenge is a symbol of continuity, of a people who've been here, as the phrase goes, since time immemorial. So is Stonehenge part of my heritage? Could I be a druid too? This is Into the Zone. A show about opposites, and how borders are never as clear as we think. My name's Hari Kunzru. I'm a fiction writer, the kind who likes to research things, and I've always wanted a chance to explore some of the true stories I've discovered. Stories that are often stranger and more affecting than fiction. In this season, I'll be finding out what it was like to be a punk behind the Iron Curtain. I'll meet the inventor of the MP3. I'll investigate spiritualism, and aliens, and country music. The zones between life and death, public and private, east and west, signal and noise, black and white. I want to know, why do we divide up the world in these ways? In this first episode, that division is personal. It's all about natives and migrants. All my life, I felt like I exist between places, in a grey zone. I'm a novelist, and these days I live in Brooklyn. But I grew up just where the east end of London fades out into the county of Essex. Essex is... how to explain Essex? It has kind of a reputation. Girl, you went to a
3: Gill and said to the girl, Joey's a little boy. Look, if you whack me up, whack me up right
0: now. I can actually understand what they're saying. That's the estuarian accent, named for the place downriver from London. This accent is totally different from a London accent, and if I listen to it for too long, I start talking that way. Essex was my home until the age of 18. Essex was where I grew up during the Thatcher years. Essex boys and girls with their flashy clothes and bad manners are the bridge and tunnel crowd of London. There's a whole genre of Essex girl jokes. How does an Essex girl turn the lights on after sex? She opens the car door. Essex girl's dad is Essex man, an old British political archetype used by pollsters as a shorthand for a particular kind of right-leaning voter, someone from a working-class background who made money and moved to the suburbs. In the 80s, Essex man brought Margaret Thatcher to power. In the 2016 Brexit referendum about whether Britain should stay in the European Union, Every single district in the county of Essex voted to leave. Essex, to me, is dancing to electro music at Illusion's under-18s nightclub in Epping. It's being chased through a subway underpass by the neo-Nazi Chingford Skins. It's the statue of Winston Churchill on Woodford Green, looking on as the local team plays cricket. It's 17-year-old boys wrapping cars around trees and having gang fights on the golf course with sharpened umbrellas. That's my English heritage. It's complicated. And now that I live in America, I don't usually get to talk about it. Great. But recently, I went to see an old school friend called Shop Malik. an old friend. An old friend. Someone I haven't seen since I left Essex.
4: Hello,
3: good lord, Harry, how are you doing? <laughs> Thirty <a> years on, <laughs> has it really been? Yes, it could have been. I think yeah, it's that's a bit scary.
0: That's really scary. I'm actually still
3: in touch with a fair number of people from. Oh, yeah. Notice yeah, he yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. says Harry, like the prince. My name's pronounced Harry. Shop's given name is actually spelt S W A P A N, and for years he let people mispronounce it, Swapan. Shop and I were close friends for a while, mostly when we were very young.
3: <laughs> really have <that> changed. <laughs> I was trying to try to ima- imagine how you would be and then, you know, 30 years
0: is a long time. So well, I'd we've both up. got like, slightly less hair <laughs> than
3: before. No, I was bald at school.
0: Were was, you I was already? And I remember 30, you had very long, short hair. Long, long, long. I mean, I think my hair all fell out because I had that phase of gelling it all vertically. I mean, I had I, that... I, well, I was trying to have that sort of high top fade that no one had explained to me that you couldn't do with Indian hair. Hair. <laughs> It was always a problem for me as a teenager. Once I tried to dye my blonde to be more like the casuals who I was trying to emulate. The boys who dressed in Italian sportswear, fila tracksuits and Diadora gold sneakers. These boys had older brothers who ran with football gangs, the Gooners or the Intercity firm. I didn't and even the ultimate casual hairstyle, a curly wet look perm, wasn't going to fix that. Anyway, in my late 20s, my hairline started to recede and I decided to shave my head. And to be honest, it was a relief. All in all, I had better hair luck than my old friend, Shop Malik. But we did have something else in common. Something else that no amount of hair gel was going to change. We were brown. Two of the only Asian kids in our very white Essex world. We were, to use the insult that dogged us every day, packies. I wanted to ask you about a personal memory that I I have. I don't know which year it was. I guess we might have been eight or nine or something like that. I'll tell you the truth. I didn't run into shop by accident. I'd taken a train to Boston to talk to him. Mainly it was to find out about his work at Harvard Medical School, which I'll get to in a moment. But also it was because he'd got out of Essex like I had and gone far, far away. I wanted in particular to see if he remembered something, something that happened when we were very young. It was your birthday, and and your parents took us to the cinema. I remember uh, us getting off at Trafalgar Square straight into a National Front rally. The National Front was and is a violent far-right organization which campaigned for an end to immigration. Back in the eighties, NF members used to be everywhere. These big skinhead guys in bomber jackets and 16-hole Doc Martin boots, telling you to go home. As a little kid, I found them terrifying. Some policemen basically came and immediately kind of took us away. And they were very concerned because we were a little gang of brown people. So it's interesting that you remember it,
3: for me, all I remember from England was that generally it was a very racist place and that that was the norm. It would not have been surprising to me that, you know, uh, you could get beaten up fairly regularly for no reason at all apart f- except for this colour of your skin. I don't know about you, but I never dared go to a football match because
0: I would be putting my I talk about this to people now who ask what football team I support and I had to explain to them that it was not safe for me to go to a football game when I was growing up. And so why on earth would I be interested in a sport where I couldn't even attend as a spectator?
3: So the amazing thing to me is that that was normal. Racism was just everywhere and it was a normal thing and we we, I don't know about you, but I just tended to ignore it and just get on with the things I was trying to do and perhaps even more scary is that, that for me, I just
0: accepted it. He's right. I just accepted it, too. But Shop couldn't remember the incident of his birthday party, the incident that had been on my mind for 30 years. I distinctly remember the Union Jacks in the distance around the base of Nelson's column. Shop's dad in a suit and tie, his mom's bottle green sari, the police whisking us out of trouble. Talking to Shop did confirm some things for me. Over the years, I tried to explain to people how it was back then. When you repeat something, turn it into a story, it can start to feel a bit hollow. Since making up stories is what I do for a living, I could start to wonder, was I exaggerating about Essex? No. I was never, ever allowed to forget that I was a packy.
4: Yep
0: yep, 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 yep. Um, and, and I don't know about you, but my solution
3: to, or to try and deal with this, was to live as happy a life as I could. And when I met racist people, my favourite thing to do was to try and make them laugh. If you made them laugh at something, they would see you in a different light. And I would like to cause that confusion in them because I felt they were wrong.
0: These days we have a language for it. All the little things, the insults and the jokes, the stuff that cumulatively wears you down and serves to remind you of your low status. We call them microaggressions. And here I'd like to emphasize the micro. Things felt bad they could have been worse. No one was spray painting slurs on our house or putting dog feces through our letterbox. Those things did happen to a friend of mine who grew up in Leicester. And I have some happy memories, mostly to do with escaping into books and music. I was a big science fiction fan. I read a lot of weird stuff, mostly in old 1960s paperbacks that I found in charity shops. I remember reading Erich von Däniken, a Swiss writer, who proposed that in ancient times, aliens had visited Earth and helped people build monuments. Stonehenge, he said, was a model of the solar system, built as a sort of road sign for passing spaceships, letting them know that there was intelligent life on the planet. I wanted that to be true when I visited Stonehenge as a kid. And today, to be honest, If there were any spaceships passing by, I wanted them to take me with them. Back on Earth, a question that always made me anxious was, where are you from? Often I didn't feel like trotting out the complicated story of my Indian dad's migration to the mother country, or how he met my English mum, and why I came to find myself a child in Essex, rather than Kashmir. I wanted to be like everyone else, to be from here, like white people were, the ones whose ancestors went back thousands of years, people who erected stones in a mysterious circle, people who had a home. I didn't know yet that this idea of an ancestral homeland was, as we say in Essex, Total bollocks. A while ago, I heard about a book called Who We Are and How We Got Here. The book is by David Reich, who runs a lab dedicated to analysing DNA samples from ancient human remains. Reich is one of the pioneers of this kind of science. It's a completely new field, less than 10 years old. In 2010, the first five ancient human genomes were published. It started as a trickle of genetic data, but it soon became a fire hose. In 2014, 38 genomes were published. By August 2017, one lab, David Reichs, had generated data for more than 3,000 samples. In seven years, we have gone from nothing to detailed portraits of thousands of ancient people. This mass of new data is allowing scientists to uncover all sorts of information about ancient humans, our ancestors they discovered that farming had developed in the Near East more than 10,000 years ago, and not in a single place, but among several different human populations. They discovered that the humans who spread into remote Pacific islands around 3,000 years ago were not the sole ancestors of the present-day inhabitants, which is a very weird story indeed, but one for another time. These scientists even discovered a whole new species of archaic hominid, A quarter of a million years ago, it wasn't just us and Neanderthals. There was a third population, the Denisovans. Their existence was completely unknown before the rise of this new kind of genetic archaeology. Right now, migration is portrayed as an existential threat to settled people. And so reading who we are and how we got here felt oddly hopeful to me. The book seemed to be opening up another kind of history, one in which human populations are always moving and changing. In this history, movement and change aren't modern phenomena, and they aren't evidence of collapse or decline. In this way of understanding history, it's migrants all the way down.
3: So I'm not a statistician. Right. I'm, uh, my background is mathematics.
0: It's... And guess who works at Reich's lab at Harvard? My friend from Essex, Shop Malik.
3: I'm um, now an informatician, um, although I'm moving now more towards the population genetics side of things.
0: Back when we were kids, Shop was the class clown. Now he's a physicist who uses terms like coalescent simulations and proboscidian in an ordinary conversation. I can't even say that. Shop is the bioinformatics director of David Reich's lab where he writes software that sorts billions of DNA sequences and creates an easily accessible database. It made me happy to find out what he'd done with his life, to discover that he was co-authoring papers in the journal Nature, working on important science.
3: And, uh, and so we're trying to make a public repository of the world's ancient data. Um, yeah. and, We generate, what, more than 50% of the world's ancient human samples now? And in addition to that, we bring in all the external samples we can, and we're trying to agglomerate them into one giant portal that's available to anyone.
0: The other voice you're hearing is David Reich. After I got reacquainted with shop, Reich gave me a tour of their lab.
1: There's not so much to see, because you're not allowed to go into the most interesting places. We have two... Um,
0: Like any good lab, this one is a kind of machine for generating data. You could think of Reich and his team as early oil prospectors, capering with glee by the side of a gusher. The stuff is coming out faster than they can deal with it. But, like old-time oil prospectors, they've had to work hard to make their fortunes. As part of your problem, the technical challenge of this is that the the proportion of the DNA that's present in these samples that's the DNA you want that's actually from the the humans is very, very small, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's a miracle there's any at all. So uh, there's tens, hundreds of thousands of times, millions of times less DNA per gram than there was when the person was alive. And where does the other DNA come from? A lot of the DNA that's there is usually mostly microbial from bacteria and fungi that colonize the bone after the individual died. But also it's a dead... Um, It's just not living bone anymore. And so the DNA is degraded, it's shattered, it's fragmented, it's been eaten um, over time. Um, It's DNA is an amazingly stable molecule and it's, it's, it's really amazing that it's still around.
0: What David Reich and his team have done is incredibly complicated, but it's actually a stack of small steps. And it's as much about practical problem-solving as it is about some eureka moment where a dude writes a lot of equations on a whiteboard. A lot of it is about industrialization, about taking time-consuming methods and automating them. This has revolutionized how we think about the past, but it's a revolution that snuck up on everyone. Reich used to work in a lab run by a Swedish scientist called Svante Peerbo at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig. At Peerbo's lab, they were trying to extract DNA from a 40,000-year-old human bone found in a cave in China. Even with a lot of computing power and all the armory of modern lab equipment, it was just too expensive to sequence the whole messy lot and search through it for the tiny traces of human DNA. How they solved this problem is, I think, incredibly cool. (laughs) In the 1990s, biologists had learned how to do something very smart, how to use laser etching techniques, invented for printing electronic circuits, to attach millions of DNA fragments to silicon or glass wafers. David Reich describes it as an array of fish hooks. Since DNA likes to bind to similar sequences, if you bait your hooks the right way, You can fish in a soup of ancient bone DNA for what you want. Reich saw the potential in this technique. He and his collaborator Nadine Rowland adapted it so they could fish out not just one chromosome, but the whole genome. In itself, that would have been impressive, but then they hired a team of technicians to grind bones, and they began fishing using robots which could prepare 96 samples at a time. And this is when the gusher of data began to flow. When you have a lot of samples, suddenly you can make comparisons and statistical inferences that simply weren't possible before. You can start to tell stories, not just about one or two ancient individuals, but about whole populations.
1: It's a completely different thing to be able to go back in time and actually with a time machine and see what happened rather than to try to piece it together from the circumstantial evidence that's left behind.
0: The Harvard team has made all kinds of discoveries and they've had an impact on the way archaeologists think about prehistory in almost every part of the world. But for me, there's one huge insight and it has to do with race, or more specifically, Northern Europeans, you know, white people. Our idea of race is largely an invention of the 18th century. Since then, we've assumed that there are a few basic primal races, African, Caucasian, Asian, and so on. People used to claim that these races had always been separate, even that they were separate species. And lately, the story has been that after some kind of fuzzy out-of-Africa business, people settled in various parts of the world, separated out, and gradually became different as they adapted to their various environments. Only when these so-called pure races met and mixed did you get people like me. There are purity fetishists all over the world. I speak as the descendant of high caste Hindu men who wouldn't touch anyone of a lower caste, or even travel by sea in case they were polluted by what they called the black water. But if you're of Northern European descent and secretly like to think of yourself as pure Aryan or some such thing, then David Reich and Shot Manick and the rest of the ancient genetics community would like a word with you. They recently dropped a bombshell in a paper innocuously titled Genomic Insights into the Origin of Farming in the Ancient Near East. We computed squared allele frequency differentiation between all pairs of ancient West Eurasians. What this paper is saying is that around 10,000 years ago, there were four different populations in Europe, and that these four populations were as different from each other as modern Europeans are from modern Chinese.
1: Comparable to the value of 0.09 through 0.13 seen between present-day West... So just
0: by eyeballing people, you'd be able to identify the four different groups. You'd probably think of them as races. You'd see hunter-gatherers with dark skin and blue eyes. You'd see farmers with light skin, dark hair and brown eyes, and then there were other different dark-skinned farmers. You'd also see migrants from far to the east with startling blonde hair. Then, over time, these populations mixed. And by the Bronze Age, those four races had disappeared. Western Europeans began to look like they do today. We have a huge racial vocabulary for mixed people, mostly dating to the era of the Atlantic slave trade. Mestizo, mulatto, meti, half-caste, creole, octoroon, quadroon, all words describing the blending of two ingredients in some particular proportion, pure white and something else. The phrase older people used for me when I was growing up was a touch of the tar brush. What David Reich's research tells us is that the people we colloquially call white are not, quote-unquote, pure. They're a hybrid population that didn't exist a few thousand years ago. I'll say that again, white people didn't exist a few thousand years ago. Calling yourself white isn't a statement about your basic biology. It's a statement about politics. Perhaps you're listening to this and you're not white. Perhaps you're thinking, haha, white people are a new invention. I, on the other hand, come from an ancient folk whose wisdom gave us the pyramids or the Rig Veda or whatever.
1: No, no. So I think there's an idea that we have that intuitively that we learn from our childhood because our cultural memory is actually very shallow. That the population structure we see around us today is somehow a reflection of something that's very age old that goes back not just thousands, but maybe tens of thousands, or even in some people's minds, even longer years, um, reflecting the population structure we see around us today.
0: Maybe even as far back as the Druids at Stonehenge.
2: It's the only credible and negotiable plan on the table.
0: I'm back in England.
2: No hard border in Northern Ireland.
0: And the the only news on the the radio is about when or how the UK will leave the European Union.
2: Just as the UK has evolved its position, the EU will need to evolve its position too.
0: Brexit is the biggest upheaval in national identity in my lifetime. All my friends seem depressed, uncertain about the future. I start my day in Peckham, in South London, as I step through the gate into the quadrangle of what was once an almshouse. It's a miniature version of an Oxford or Cambridge college, a square closed in on itself, one of those semi-secret places that exist in London. It's an entirely appropriate setting to find the lair of a historian, someone who can tell me more about the Druids.
2: I'm Rosemary Hill. I am an independent scholar and researcher and my subject in so far as I have one is history but the history of objects in relation to abstract ideas.
0: And how did you come to be interested in Stonehenge? Sorry. I was saying. And how did you come to be interested in Stonehenge, a large object?
2: <laughs> a very large object. Well who isn't interested in Stonehenge? And I was interested, really, because of the ideas that it's attracted. I'm interested in what people have thought about it, and I'm also interested in the many hundreds of years when no one thought anything about it.
0: Rosemary Hill says that for a long time, no one cared very much about Stonehenge. People thought it might be a natural formation, or a failed attempt at a building. It looked nothing like the beautiful temples of ancient Greece and Rome. Then. In the 17th century, a scholar named John Aubrey took a closer look. Aubrey was one of Britain's first archaeologists. To him, Stonehenge had clearly been made for a reason.
2: I mean, Aubrey was the first person really to think about prehistory. The idea that there was something before we had any records. And in a moment of absence of mind, of which Aubrey had many, he referred to it having been druidic because the only people who anyone had ever referred to as living in Britain before the Romans were the Druids. And it was really a slightly throwaway remark. But William Stukeley, who was the next great antiquary to approach Stonehenge, took up the Druids with tremendous force and really very largely made them into what they are now.
0: Ah yes, the Druids. The problem with the Druids is they didn't actually appear until thousands of years after Stonehenge was built.
2: One of the things that always interests me is that if people, enough people believe something for long enough, it will happen. And so many people for so long believed that there were druids at Stonehenge, that in the course of time, druids appeared at Stonehenge.
0: Why? Because druids became fashionable. In the 18th century, there was a full-scale druidic revival. Gentlemen set up druidic societies in England, a bit like the Freemasons, but but with more drinking and medal ceremonies, also a lot of horrible infighting. But gradually, the roistering druids discovered their mystical side.
2: They become interested in a spiritual view of the world, in um, a pagan kind of religion though I don't think at the beginning they would care to be called pagans. They were associated at various points with Wicca, which was the only religion ever to have been founded in England. And, of course, as time went on, and the increasing clamour for Stonehenge to become a public monument, um, once it became public, then all the controversy really boiled over. That was when the actual fighting started at Stonehenge over who should own it.
0: When Rosemary says fighting, she means it, actual fighting.
4: The convoy of 150 trucks, coaches and caravans moved off shortly after midday to drive to Stonehenge in defiance of the law.
0: For at least a century, Stonehenge has been the scene of violent confrontations between the forces of order and those who want to celebrate pagan rituals inside the Stone Circle. In the years before the First World War, There were riotous scenes involving mystics calling themselves the Universal Bond of the Sons of Men. On the solstice in 1925, a thousand angry Druids stormed the newly erected fence. Since then, Stonehenge has become a beacon for all those opposed to the state. In 1985, police set up roadblocks around Stonehenge to stop a convoy of what the press used to call New Age Travellers. Officers attacked the convoy's vehicles with extreme violence, smashing windows and hitting people with truncheons, including pregnant women and mothers with babies in arms.
2: see what they're doing to us? <laughs>
0: 537 travelers were eventually arrested in one of the largest mass arrests since the Second World War. So who does Stonehenge belong to? The state or the people? And if it's the people, then which people?
4: That feels amazing. (laughs) That really does. That feels awesome. <laughs> you finding it difficult now. Can I ah, just what, what were
3: you doing there? Um, we're making a radio documentary about the stones. Well, what was um, I
4: doing? Yeah, what was I, I was feeling the vibrations going through the stones, and then bringing them into myself as vibrational energy changes you, as everything is vibration.
3: How does that make you feel?
4: Um, oh, absolutely amazing.
0: The other voice you're hearing there is Will, my producer. He's come along with me to Stonehenge on my Equinox mission. We're wandering among the stones, waiting for the sun to rise. We found a guy with a didgeridoo, blowing it in between two of the upright stones, as his friend sticks her head in the gap to listen. The didgeridooist is dressed in what i call a sort of rustic Inca outfit a poncho and a hat with flowers on it. His friend is wearing a cloak and has a crown of blossoms in her hair. She's one part village barmaid. One part Elven Princess.
4: But you need to be able to tune yourself into the vibrations and the frequencies in order to then get the benefit from it. He knows what I'm on about.
2: <laughs> yeah, but yeah, just trying to find
4: like a natural pitch in it. Uh, if you if you stand and say om
3: to
0: me. Oh, oh. you say om as well. Oh. Oh. We'll try and hit the same key. Oh. 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 Did you hear that kind of resonance when all the frequencies met at the same point that's right. what I'm trying the to get, get in between the stones
4: resonate that. the frequencies so when you produce good frequencies that produces good energies within you and it's increased and multiplied by the stones yeah so that we can then share it with others
0: she has a lot to say about frequencies and she and her friend both have birthdays around Christmas, which is nice. But mainly, she wants us to know about the frequencies. Uh, and
4: there's different frequencies, yeah? And they have different impacts upon the human body. And certain ones healing, certain ones give you higher levels of consciousness. Uh, certain ones even do DNA repair. If you want a good sound check,
2: uh, stick your microphone in here. You, don't don't try, and, try and hit a frequency of 10K. Let's try this again. <laughs>
0: As I walk around the stones on the equinox, David Reich's DNA science is on my mind, a sort of secret, eating away at me. Thee we invoke, O light of life. Thee we invoke, O light of life. Be thou a bright flame… What that science has to say is troubling to both the official national culture and the counterculture that venerates these stones. For more than a century, archaeologists have traced the spread of a particular kind of ancient pottery across Europe, a distinctive drinking vessel in the shape of a bell. The record shows these bell beakers made their way to the British Isles just after the time that Stonehenge was built.
2: To our friends, to our foes, to our
0: British archaeologists have argued for decades about whether bell beaker artifacts signal just a type of knowledge or the arrival of a new people. David Reich's genetic analysis gives a definitive answer. Reich shows that the Bell Beakers were brought to the island by new people, immigrants. You might even call it an invasion. Within a few generations, the Neolithic farmers who built Stonehenge were almost completely replaced. And modern-day Britons descend from the invaders, not the builders. It wasn't our ancestors who built Britain's Great Stone Age Monument 5,000 years ago. It was someone else entirely. Outrage could well be the quintessential British emotion. Certainly, it's the one that seems to give us the most pleasure. It's the defining emotion of Brexit. Outrage at foreigners trying to make us fit in with their foreign ways. Inevitably, it defined coverage of the Bell-Beaker discovery made by David Reich's lab. The headline in the Daily Telegraph, No one living in Britain, truly British, scientists find, as Stonehenge builders were replaced by European immigrants. But who were those builders of Stonehenge? The ones who raised the stones and were then displaced? Sure enough, ancient DNA research has given us this answer, too. David Reich and my friend Shott Malik are credited as co-authors of a paper titled Ancient Genomes Indicate Population Replacement in Neolithic Britain. It shows that before the Bell Beaker folk, early farming people migrated out of Anatolia around 6000 BC. That's Anatolia as in Turkey.
2: And now Mrs. Merkel has decided that Turkey must become a member of the European Union by 2025 at the latest. So if you vote to remain, ladies and gentlemen, you're voting to go into a political union with Turkey.
0: That's Nigel Farage, leader of the Brexit party. He's trying to persuade his audience to vote to leave the EU by scaremongering about Turks being able to come and live in Britain. But if you pay attention to ancient DNA research, it looks like Farage is about 6,000 years too late. And it gets worse for him and his xenophobic crew. David and Schopp's paper concludes that we also infer considerable variation in pigmentation levels in Europe. Yes, you did hear that right. Variation in pigmentation levels. It's a polite way of telling the reader that some Neolithic Europeans had dark skin. Black and white are just clusters of traits, snapshots of genetic drift. At the 2019 Tory party conference, the Home Secretary banged on a familiar nationalist drum.
2: As Home Secretary, at this defining moment in our country's history, I have a particular responsibility when it comes to taking back control. It is to end the free movement of people once and for all.
0: The Home Secretary who wants to end the free movement of people once and for all is a British Asian. Her name is Priti Patel, whose Gujarati family came to the UK from Uganda. She looks into the camera and smiles. I can't tell you how chilling I find that smile.
2: We stand for the law-abiding majority and not the criminal minority.
0: It's not that it's surprising to find a right-wing South Asian. It's the placid way that she seems to have disconnected herself from her own family history, from the forces that made her. She wants you to know that despite her brown skin, she's no cosmopolitan, but a salt of the earth child of immigrants, happy to pull the ladder up after herself.
2: We will get Brexit done and deliver on the people's priorities. Thank you.
0: And welcome. The sun is finally rising at Stonehenge, though it's cloudy, so we don't get the full cosmic experience.
1: May there be peace in the east.
0: People are doing personal rituals around the stones, burning incense, tapping finger symbols or quietly praying. The sweet smell of weed lingers in the air. Someone, to my surprise, has raised a Palestinian flag. I thought that people who were interested in ancestral wisdom might also be nationalists, people who voted for Brexit, who wanted fewer foreigners on ancient English soil. My plan was to tackle this head-on, to ask people whether it mattered to them that their stone-raising ancestors might not be their ancestors at all. But when it comes to it, it feels rude to harsh the vibe.
3: Hail and welcome. Hail Hail and welcome welcome. Flow through our emotions and wash away our fears until we feel at peace with who we truly are.
0: So much so it, so it be. What I hear later from pretty much everyone I talk to is that they consider the stones a universal place, a place for everyone. The crowd celebrating the equinox at Stonehenge don't have much time for captains and kings. They're more than happy to share a swig of mead or a joint or to offer a little Reiki healing to anyone passing by. The Neolithic farmers who built the great monument may not have known the cosmic secrets of the universe, and they may not have left a genetic legacy in the bodies of the worshippers or the police standing to one side. They passed through and left something behind. May there be peace
2: throughout the whole world. May there be peace throughout the whole world. So much it be. So much it
0: be. Time to leave Stonehenge, to leave Druids, and peace and the equal balance of day and night. Time to leave Essex man and messy genetics. It's time to go to Virginia. Everything was stitched into the fates, Harry. You know, nothing. there's nothing by chance. Whiskey and some very old records and a little bit of twang. That's next time on Into the Zone. Into the Zone is produced by Ryder Alsop and Hunter Braithwaite. Our editor is Julia Barton. Mia Bell is our executive producer. Martin Gonzalez is our engineer. Music and theme song for this episode composed by Sarah K. Pedinotti, also known as Lip Talk. Thanks to our UK producers, Kate Ellis and William Warren. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain. John Schnaz, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Eric Sandler, Emily Rostick, and Maggie Taylor. Into the Zone is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider letting others know. The best way to do this is by rating us on Apple Podcasts. You could even write a review. And for a Spotify playlist of songs that inspired this episode, you can find me on Twitter at atharikundru. See you next time.